Well, good morning. I know some of you are uh, more pleased than you should be that we're starting a new sermon series today. Uh, and we're going to spend a few short weeks here in the book of Jonah. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to them. If you're using a pew Bible, it should be on page 774. Uh, if you're using one of the Bibles that are in the seat backs in front of you. Um, Jonah is a really interesting book. It's kind of short. It's uh, wedged in between... Uh, Obadiah and Micah, just sort of jammed in there, very short. But for me, Jonah is a, uh, a really interesting book of the Bible to study, especially because of its historical context. So if you turn there, we'll just go through it in our usual style, which is verse by verse. And so today what I want to do is just begin with some uh, generalized context uh, about Jonah and uh, Right. Uh, and this is uh, a couple of things that we need to, to address. First off is that Jonah is one of the 12 minor prophets. So if you're reading through your Bible, you notice that uh, towards the end of the Old Testament, the Old Testament is broken up into uh, a few major sections. One of those is prophetic in nature, and you'll have five uh, large prophets or major prophets at the beginning, and then there will end with 12 minor prophets. Uh, and the problem that most people fall into is that the prophetic books, minor and major, are not like baseball. I know if some of you love baseball, that's not what we're talking about, where you get the major leagues, which are the important ones, and you get the minor leagues, which only really obsessed people kind of follow. Uh, in the books of the Bible, the terms major and minor only address the length of the book. So if you were to read through the book of Jonah, you would notice that it's a mere four chapters long, and you could probably get through it an entire night. It's really, really short. And so it fits into the category of minor prophet. Um, uh, the time of the writing of this book, my control thing up here that shows me where I'm going is not working at the moment, so we'll have to just make this up as we go, which is my favorite style anyway. Uh, so Jonah prophesied from 782 to 753 BC, and we know those numbers uh, as a fact because Jonah is actually mentioned in another book of the Bible. Did you know this? That Jonah doesn't just have the book of the Bible written after him, but actually makes an appearance in the second book of Kings where he's prophesying to one of the kings of Israel. And so we know from the reign, from the time of that king's reign, that Jonah was an active prophet between these dates, 782 to 753 BC. So we can know who wrote the book of Jonah, we can know when the book of Jonah was written. Next slide. And here we go, this is fun. Sometimes Jonah is known as the reluctant prophet, and I'll talk about this a little bit later on in the sermon, uh, but sometimes when people describe Jonah, they describe him as the reluctant prophet. And I find that a very interesting description, uh, and we'll get to it, but not to give away too much, uh, he ran in the complete opposite direction. So when you're looking at the definition of reluctant, it's not so much reluctance as it is, uh, well, I'm going to run as fast as humanly possible in the opposite direction and I'm not going to do anything I'm told to do. That's not really what my mother would call reluctant. Uh, she would call that disobedient. And so he's sometimes known as the reluctant prophet. Still not working. So next slide. So if we're, we're going to dive in right now, we're going to just start simply with uh, chapter 1, verse 1. 
So if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to follow along. And this is what God's word says. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying... So we're going to stop right there because there's a lot right there to unpack. Uh, A lot of biblical prophetic books begins with now the word of the Lord to show where his word was coming from. Jonah was not just making this up as he went along. There was a, uh, a voice or a way that God communicated to him. And so that is recorded here in verse 1. Now, the Lord, uh, word of the Lord came to Jonah. The name Jonah means dove. I know you're all very impressed. Thank you very much. I'll be here all week. Uh, the word Jonah means dove. Now, what's, what's interesting about the word dove is that uh, we have a 20th century uh, vision of what that word, 21st century vision of what that means. Uh, but the reality of the word dove is that in certain Hebrew literatures, not only is it representative of the human soul, it is also representative of human foolishness. So you and I might think of dove and we might think of peace. You know, a dove carrying an olive branch uh, is a sign of peace. But in a lot of uh, Hebrew literature, the dove represented the human soul and foolishness. And the uh, Jonah's last name, Ben... I'm going to butcher this, but Amitai, Amiti, however you'd like to pronounce that. I think both versions are correct. Uh, that actually means son of faithfulness. Now, so, so when you put those two together, uh, it means that Jonah means the foolish son of faithfulness. Uh, it's just weird, all right? I'm not saying this is brilliant. I'm not saying this is brand new uh, work that we're laying the groundwork here. But what I find often is in the names of the people that God chooses to relay and convey his message, their names all often have an importance to the story. And so if we were to uh, summarize what the book of Jonah is about, it is about two hearts. It is about the heart of Jonah and the heart of God. The heart of Jonah is a heart of foolishness and selfishness, and the heart of God is about love and grace and forgiveness and love. And so, right here in his very name, you have the subject of the book of Jonah. You could summarize all four chapters simply in Jonah's name, that he is the foolish son of the faithful one. That Jonah is the son of faithfulness. It contrasts the foolishness of man with the faithfulness of God. Verse 2, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. So we're going to take a little bit of time just to talk about Nineveh, because uh, if you've spent time in uh, the church, you have heard the story of Jonah and the great fish, usually in Sunday school. Uh, And if you were in the the crafty phase, you probably made like a big fish out of the the clothespins that ate the little Jonah. Just me? Okay, okay, whatever. Um... I did that when I was a kid. And so uh, we're going to just look at a little bit of the historical context of Nineveh. Uh, Nineveh was the seat of power of the Assyrian Empire. Uh, Nineveh was their capital city. It's where their king sat. And what you need to know about the Assyrians is that they hated the nation of Israel. And I don't just mean oh, we're not going to trade with them anymore. They actively sought to destroy them whenever possible. All right? They they had a hatred for the nation of Israel, and Nineveh was their capital city. What's the next slide? 
Nineveh sat on the east bank of the Tigris River, about 220 miles north of present-day Baghdad. So if you were to look at the Middle East and you were to look at the, the, the map of where these people uh, lived and where the seat of their power was, it was on the Tigris River, which was a massive river that ran through the, what is now current-day Iraq and Iran. Uh, and that river was a source of life to the city. Trade could come along that city. They could get their navy to move down that river uh, into the place where they needed to go. This was the heart of their empire. It's my next slide. Nineveh was the capital. Look at that. That was an interesting typo right there. But Jonah... This is in verse 3. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down to it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. What's really interesting about this particular passage is uh, at one of these places, times I have a map to sort of get into your brains what's happening here, and it should be coming up on one of these slides. Um, there it is, but my computer apparently is not working the way it's supposed to, so you'll have to bear with me. Um, I'm not so sure if you can see that or not, but right here, point A, yes, this is Google Maps, uh, right here, point A, you can see uh, Jerusalem and you can see Joppa. That is where uh, Jonah was, where he went down to. Uh, you can see Nineveh is up and around over there. That's where Nineveh is, great, right, on the, the Tigris River. Jonah decided he's going to get into a boat and travel to Tarshish. Right there. I'm not sure if he was essentially going as far away from Nineveh as physically possible before he started coming around the other way. Like, in his mind, when you see that what, uh, when you look at this particular map and you see where he was traveling to, he wasn't going to any of the important cities, he wasn't going to Egypt, he was going as far away as he could, he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord. In verse 3 it says that Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish. He wasn't just going on a quick little journey. This wasn't, I'm packing a rucksack and I'm going to, to, to hike around the mountain trails. He wasn't, he was physically running as far and as fast as he possibly could in the opposite direction of where God told him to do. If we're going to be honest with each other, and I think church is a place where we're going to be honest, there is a little bit of each of us, when God asks us to do something difficult, that we have those thoughts, man, I'm going to go as far and fast in the opposite direction as I possibly can. When God says to us, I want you to go here or do this, no, thank you, I'm out of here. What's my next slide? The destination is repeated three times in this particular scripture verse to drive home or to illustrate the point that Jonah was being disobedient. Whenever you're reading your Bible, you'll find it uh, an, an interesting study that whenever you see something repeated three times, it's a Hebrew literary technique to draw attention to, of the reader to a particular fact. It's a way of emphasizing something in our brains. And so here in this particular verse, it'll say three times that uh, Jonah was fleeing to Tarshish, which is an awkward word to say. It makes you sound like you have a lisp when you say it, Tarshish. But it's very interesting. And so Jonah was running in the complete opposite 
direction. Now, I want you to imagine something just for a second. And maybe this will put it into a little bit of context as to why Jonah was fleeing as fast as he possibly could. I want you to imagine that God shows up to you today. I don't know how he does it. Maybe he shows up in the form. There's an angel of the Lord appear to you, bright and flaming with the sword. We've already discussed in previous sermons, if that ever happened to me, I would run in the opposite direction as fast as possibly could. That would freak me out. But I want you to imagine that God shows up to you and says, I want you to grab your Bible and I want you to board a plane and I want you to fly to Iraq. And either Iraq or Iran, and either in the middle of Tehran or in the middle of Baghdad, I want you to, to pull a milk crate up and I want you to tell every single person in either Baghdad or uh, Tehran that they are sinners, that they need to be called to repentance and they need to follow Jesus Christ. What would happen to you? Uh, you would be killed probably before you even landed. I mean, I'm like, let's be honest here, if you were to put this in modern day terms, uh, and this is exactly where Jonah was uh, fleeing from. He was being asked by God to go to the capital of the Assyrian Empire, an empire that hated and killed Jews, and he was told that he needed to go there and call them to repent. There is no modern day equivalent other than saying, let's go to the heart of where ISIS is, and you need to stand in their midst and tell them that the God of the universe is angry with them and that he's going to destroy them if they don't repent and come to Jesus. I don't have the guts to do that. Look, I can, I can be up here and I can be holier than thou and all that kind of stuff. I am telling you right now, if an angel of the Lord appeared to me, I would be boarding a ship to Tarshish as fast as physically possible. That's why I find it really interesting that we call Jonah the reluctant prophet. When I was growing up uh, and sort of reading this story and growing up in church, I had a really mental picture of Jonah that he was a coward, that Jonah was uh, unfaithful to God, that Jonah was a bad person. I had all of these mental images about Jonah uh, because as a child, I didn't fully understand the context of what God was asking him to do. Now that I'm an adult and I've studied this particular book of the Bible, as a human, I understand a little bit of what Jonah was going through. The fear that must have been pulsating through his head, the sickness in his stomach of, of not only disobeying God, but then also the fear of his life. Now, the Assyrians, they were not nice people. I'm not sure how much you know about the Assyrians, uh, but when they conquered a city, they would take the babies of the city to the high walls and they would throw the babies off the walls to the ground. Like, the Assyrians were not nice people. Later on, when we get to a couple of chapters later, when Jonah actually ends up in Nineveh, uh, and the Ninevans, uh, Ninevites repent, uh, Jonah will actually say, say, why, God, are you saving them? Don't you know how bad they are? They're terrible people. And so often I think that what we do is we unfortunately we look at Jonah and we, we put ourselves into a good light and we say, I'm so much better than Jonah because I wouldn't run from God the way that Jonah did. But I want you to understand that aside from the power of the Holy Spirit in your life, every single one of us does this. That every single one of us, uh, if you live long enough, you will run from what God has asked you to do. I, I, I believe that. 
not in a, in a bad, this is not a, I think you're a terrible people type of thing, but I, I want you to really understand what I'm trying to say here. I believe that human nature is to value our own lives more uh, than the message or the, the plan that God has us on. And so without the power of the Holy Spirit giving us power, without giving us courage, without giving us the words to stay, I believe that in our human natures alone, every single one of us would run as fast as possible from God. Verse 4. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea. And can I just say a side note? I don't think we use the word tempestuous enough. I like that word. It is a good word. We don't use it enough. But uh, there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea for light, uh, and to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner parts of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. There's another interesting thing here. How could Jonah be asleep during a storm on a ship? Uh, when I was about 15 years old, I went on a uh, deep sea, and I use that word loosely because it wasn't a really deep sea, fishing trip with my dad. We loaded up at the horrible time of like 4.30 in the morning, which I don't know why that is an actual time, for people to wake up, it is horrible, and um, I don't trust anyone that wakes up that early. Um, we, we got onto this boat at 4.30, we drove out into the sea for about an hour, an hour and a half, and then they decided that it was going to be great fun to sit on uh, this deck in the middle of the ocean with the sun beating down on us with our fishing rods uh, out and with our, our lines in the water. And then uh, a couple of hours into what I very charitably call fun, the wind started to pick up and the, the waves started to rock and suddenly the boat was doing something akin to back and forth and back and forth. And after about 10 minutes of that, I politely said to my father, I'm out. And if I need to swim to the shore, I will. Um, I, I've had enough. Uh, I cannot imagine in that particular weather or worse going down into the depths of the, the hull of the ship and being able to sleep. Now, we know that this was a storm that was bad enough that sailors whose job it was to transport cargo from one port to another, who had made this journey probably a thousand times, who were hardened sailors, feared for their lives and started throwing their stuff into the ocean. That's how bad this storm was. This wasn't just a little, oh, there's a light breeze. No, this was a storm on the ocean. And Jonah has fallen asleep in the boat. Now, I don't know how or why, but I have an assumption. I have a theory in the back of my brain that you can disagree with or not, but it doesn't say how much time has passed here. This is a, a long sailing trip. This isn't a, a trip that you can do in a day. I believe that Jonah is so physically and mentally exhausted that he's fallen into one of those deep sleeps that only occurs when you are physically and mentally exhausted when you've pushed yourself to the edge of your endurance, when everything is going wrong in your life and you've stayed awake for as long as you possibly can and things like guilt and uh, your inner workings have kept you awake. Did you know those times? Um, and it's not necessarily reflective of a bad thing in you, but those times when you're so worried and stressed out about something that you're not physically able to sleep. And when you get to the edge of your endurance and you're exhausted, only then do you fall into that, that restless type of sleep. Do, do you know this? Or is it just me that, that sometimes happens to? I, I believe that the only way that Jonah could fall asleep uh, in this ship 
while the ship is threatening to break up around him was that he has pushed himself to the edge of endurance and he is exhausted. Again, I just want to bring a little bit of humanity back into the story of Jonah. What's my next slide? Because I swear I've missed something. Next slide. One more. Here we go. Here's something interesting about the sailors. What does it take for you to throw your livelihood into the sea? The sailors on the ship that's going from Joppa to Tarshish were uh, merchant sailors. They made their living by trading different goods. Uh, the way that it would work is that they would be paid to trade those goods and they would get a small cut of the profits, only a small amount. So what would it take for one of those sailors to throw all of their time, all their money, all of their effort into the sea? You can imagine that these sailors maybe had families that they were trying to support. Maybe they had loved ones that they needed to pay bills for, that they needed to feed, and they would rely on the money of their trade in order to feed their families. So what would it take for one of those people to start throwing that livelihood into the sea? Only a massive storm. Only something that these sailors would fear for their lives. What's my next slide? And I, th I think it brings up this point. In the darkest of times, you'll try anything to survive. Outside of the power of the Holy Spirit, again, in your darkest times, you will try anything to survive. And what I find in this particular case is whether you're a Christian or you're not, in the darkest times, very often you'll turn to prayer. In the darkest times, even if you're an atheist, a lot of the times you'll turn to prayer. Uh, there's an old expression that there's no atheists in foxholes. And I'm not sure if that's a, a good thing about prayer or if that's a really bad thing about foxholes. Or both. Jonah... The book of Jonah is about compassion. It's about the compassion in the heart of God. But here's what's really interesting to me. Is that these sailors, who it says were pagans, if you were to read this in verse 5, it says, Then the mariners were afraid, they cried out. Each, each cried out to his God. So not only were they pagans, but each one had their own separate God to cry out to. So they, they, they didn't know the God of Israel. They weren't what we would say saved. They didn't know Jesus, but instead each one of them cried out to whatever was uh, the most important thing in their lives. And if you are honest with yourself, that exa is exactly, apart from God, what we do in our lives. That when the dark times come, when the storms in our lives hit us the hardest, we will go to whatever we feel safe and secure and comfortable in, uh, and then at the last resort, even then we'll pray to God. And so in the darkest times of your life, where you put your faith and your hope tells you something about your nature and character. Jonah, dove, foolishness. Man puts their hope in things that can't help. But being the son of faithfulness, they put their, Jonah puts his hope in God in a little bit. But here's where we get slightly interesting. Hey, don't spoil my, my conclusion yet. <laughs> Hurry up then. Now I just lost my point. It was in my brain. Great. Uh, 
here, here's what's interesting about God, is that sometimes that darkness in our lives is caused by God. And, and I really, I want to, to tread lightly here so that you understand what I'm saying, is often God uses things in our lives to get our attention. It says here that God sent the great wind upon the sea. He did it to get Jonah's attention. And sometimes when the darkness hits our lives, God is using that darkness to get our attention. Uh, I really wish he wouldn't. Like, you're with me, right? That's not just me. Like, after this, you're probably going to strip me of my bars and be like, he can't be a lieutenant anymore. He's he's saying all this weird stuff. Look, I want to be honest with you here. And and sometimes I really wish God wouldn't use storms to get our attention, but the reality of the world is that he does. Uh, In Egypt this week, a a van of Coptic Christians carrying 25 people were gunned down. They were traveling. I don't know what they were doing, uh, but their van was stopped. They were taken out of their buses and they were all executed, just shot in place. In Manchester this week, someone who was touting extremism and belief that their God would send them to heaven detonated a device, blew people up. Some bad stuff happening in the world. God doesn't cause that stuff to happen per se. He didn't, he didn't make those people do this. But I, I, I truly believe that in those dark times, the compassionate heart of God comes out. And he uses that darkness to help. And he uses that darkness to lift up. And he uses that darkness to guide. The day after the Manchester bombings, there were thousands of people that gathered in Manchester to hold up signs saying that we're stronger now. We're together now. We have unity now. During the the time of the blast where people didn't know what was happening, uh, going back and forth, cabbies turned off the meter in their, in their cabs and let people go back and forth. Neighbors threw open their doors and allowed people who didn't know where they could go or they didn't have any way because roads were closed and they were in a heightened state of terror. Uh, they threw open their doors and allowed strangers to sleep in their houses. One article that I read said uh, one person just continually boiled water for tea because if you know anything about the English you will know that tea is a big thing. There was a woman who gave out her phone number on Twitter so that any parents who had teenagers going to the concert could call her and see if the teenagers were in her house because she had opened her house for anyone to come in. In the darkest of times, the compassionate heart of God God shines through his people and shines through his creations whether they know it or not. And so when the darkness comes, when the storms happen, compassion is the greatest gift that God has given us. The Assyrians were bad people. The Assyrians killed innocent people. But God still wanted his prophet 
to go there and to proclaim the good news to them. So there's a couple of points here that I want to take away from this sermon. Uh, just three, believe it or not. So the first one's going to be up on the screen in a second. God will sometimes call you to do things that you do not want to do. And how you react to it really says a lot about your character. Sometimes it's going to be simple. God's going to call you to go and talk to a person on the street that maybe you don't have, you don't feel like you have the skill to evangelize properly. Maybe you don't have the words to articulate the fullness of the good news of Jesus Christ. Maybe it's going to be something big and difficult that God calls you to missionary work, God calls you to sacrifice. But sometimes God will call you to do things that you don't want to do. Point two. You can always find a boat going in the wrong direction. When God calls you to do the things that you don't want to do, there will always be a boat that is tr there to take you in the opposite direction. And, and here's what's really interesting about this. A lot of times, people will find that boat ready to take you in the opposite direction and be like, see, God's blessing me. When the reality is it's not from God. It very often can come from Satan because Satan wants you to go in the opposite direction. But I believe that you can always find a boat going in the wrong direction. Next one, number three. Final point. And perhaps this is the hardest. God will sometimes send a storm to get your attention. Sometimes the storm will be small and pray to God that it is small. Sometimes the storm will be a tempest that will rock your boat and your life to the very core. It will make you exhausted, beyond exhausted. It will push you to the edge of your endurance and push you into total and complete surrender before the God of the universe. I pray for each of you that those storms aren't big in your lives, but I can make no guarantee that they won't be. Anyone that tells you that he can guarantee that, buy a lottery ticket. Because they're definitely selling something. But, it, but this is simply what I want to end on today. I want to end with compassion. I want to end with how we respond in our lives. I want to end with us reflecting on the things that God has given us to do and whether or not we've found a boat to take us in the opposite direction or whether or not each one of us can fully and utterly rely on God we trust in him even when the storms come. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you today that you are with us.